Father, we give you our praise this morning. Um, many of us have raised our voices. Some of us have raised our hands. Teach one of us. Uh, God, it's an opportunity to lift ourselves before you because you are worthy of our praise. Father, we've sung a song that looked at Jesus from birth through his death and his resurrection. We're so grateful. Thank you for loving us, for being with us today. May your presence be felt. May you be heard by each one of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And you can be seated. That song hits me, so I kind of have to take the last stanza to kind of <clears throat> pull myself together so I can get up here and not, you know. <sighs> here we are. True confessions, right? Hmm. Well, today we are starting our December, our Christmas series, and uh, we're excited about that wonder, the promise of hope and the promise of Christmas. And now this concept of wonder, especially at Christmas, I love that. And, and when this series came up and I spoke with Ron and we kind of talked about the series and saw where we were headed, I, I remember I'm thinking last year I spoke on wonder. It wasn't a series on wonder, but my one week. And I went back and sure enough, it was there. And one of the things that helped me remember was a short video of a child's wonder at Christmas, his over-the-top wonder. Let's watch just a little piece of that. That video is several minutes, and that kid is in a in a basically a Costco kind of thing, looking at Christmas decorations and seeing all that stuff, and he is just blown away. Isn't that awesome? Well, today and in this series, and I remember last year talking about the, you know, that wow part of Christmas, and and today we're going to explore the wonder of Christmas, and then this series from a more I want to call it a contemplative perspective, not quite the blow your socks off. Uh, but not that the high energy, the oohs and ahs that go on, not that those are, are, um, are a bad thing, you know, ooing and on over the amazing nature of God and his gift of Jesus. It's not that it's immature at all, uh, but uh, instead of that amped up expression that will burn you out if you try to keep it up, I mean, I look at that baby and go, he's this close to hyperventilation by the time he's done, right? He's just going to keel over and mom's going to have to rescue him through that. And so there's time and place for those, <gasps> you know, but a sustained wonder, a contemplated wonder is, is where we're going to go with this series um, that goes deep into your soul. And I want to explore that wonder for a moment with another short video. And so as we watch this, uh, there's no audio on this. Sometimes it helps to slow down and even sit down. And let's go ahead and run that second video. Wonder can be defined as amazement and admiration of something that is remarkable, something that's beautiful, something that's, that's new. Sometimes we can be so busy we miss it, but to stop and just look and to stop and smell the roses and, and see the beauty of God's creation, of the flowers, of the ocean and its power, and yet beneath it is a whole life. To see God's creation, something so small as a hummingbird, and yet the uniqueness of its flight with its figure eight wings and its ability to hover and do so many odd things. And then the wonder of a child, of a newborn baby, we can just go wow at, especially a sleeping baby, right? I mean, that's gold. <laughs> Even if it's a baby you don't know, just the, wow. I see the stars and I see God's creation. 
And I see God in life when I take the moment to do that. So this month, we get to explore the wonder of Christmas seen in the promise that Christmas brings. And that's the birth of a baby, but not just any baby. Of course, that's Jesus, God's own son, and God himself coming in the form of a man as a baby. Well, go ahead and look on your message notes or up on the screen. Psalm 17, 7 says, show me, here we go, show me the wonders of your great love. You who saved us by your right hand, show me the wonders of, of, of your love, God, and expressed in his creation, but in so many ways. God's love is a great love, and we can stop and marvel at it and really wonder at it. In fact, truth be told, if we really think about it, most of our thoughts about God, if we take, if we take a moment, are going to turn to wonder. We can think about God and move on, but if we just stop and, and think God, it leads you to that wow moment. And it says in Psalm 145, 13, speaking about God at the beginning, it says, your kingdom, God, is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. God's everlasting kingdom, well, that inspires wonder. God's dominion and power, they inspire wonder. God's promises and his faithfulness that are always there, they, they inspire wonder. Now, the Bible speaks of God's promises over and over again, and those promises are found in the Bible from thousands and thousands of years ago, way before the baby Jesus was born, and yet they are alive and true today. In fact, there's a verse in 2 Corinthians that's really our theme verse for this series that brings the wonder of God's promises to us at Christmas. The promises that were written for so many thousands of years, here's what, here's what it says here in 1 Corinthians. Let's bring that slide up. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20. Now, Jesus bring God's promises to life for us today as we put our faith and hope in him. And as Pastor Ron shared in his email blast, as I read through it this last week, there was a line I pulled out I wanted to share. It says, when Jesus came, it was God's amen, or may it be so, for all of his promises. The promises that just go back and go back. The promises of peace in the midst of troubles. The promise of a God-filled future in the midst of uncertainties and uncertain times. The promise of a God who will never leave us or forsake us no matter what. If we turn our back on him and even if we run away from him as fast as we can, he is there. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The promise of salvation. Now, we're letting the Advent calendar, uh, as we started with the candle today, the candle of hope, we're letting that steer our topics this month as today we focus on the promise of hope that comes at Christmas time and the wonder that's a part of that. And each, uh, each week during the series, we'll be exploring a different psalm. Pastor Ron mentioned that earlier that was written. Again, they were written before Jesus was born, and yet Jesus is revealed in each one of them. And we'll see that today in Psalm 80. These Old Testament psalms will bring us to the wonder of Christmas as his promises of hope and love and joy and peace. They're all declared yes in Christ. The promises that are there are declared yes in Christ, and we experience them fully in Jesus. So I want to dive into it today with you. We'll be looking at the promise of hope and digging into Psalm 80 as our Bible passage of study. And you can turn there in your Bible, your notebook, your notepad, your phone, your outlines, all the different places to do that. They'll be up on the screen as well. We'll look at the historical context of the psalm first, and then we'll apply it to our own lives here in the 21st century. I think it's important to go back and make sure we understand the setting of what's going on here historically, what it's meaning to them at the time it's written, and then, then we'll apply it to ourselves. 
I want to start by telling you that Psalm 80 is a prayer for restoration. It's a desperate prayer for restoration of the nation of Israel because they are in deep, deep trouble. I don't know if that ever fits in your own life. If you go, man, I am desperate and I'm in trouble, but that's where they're at. It's a plea for revival of life, and it contains the hope of restoration, not just desperate, but God, you are granting us a way out and that hope. They need saving desperately, and really so do we, don't we? Uh, I guess I would ask, do you need a restoration in your life somewhere? Maybe recovery, maybe a new hope. Maybe you're in a place where things seem dark and the light of Jesus, the light of Jesus is desperately needed to shine forth, to light your way, to bring you to God's place of rest. If that's you, if some light might shine upon where you're at and that would be helpful, then today is for you. Now, as we look at Psalm 80, we'll see that three times here is repeated this desperate plea. It's this, it says, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. That's the hope. I want to bring it now before we even get into it because let your face shine because he's saying, I know that when your face shines on us, we will be saved. So restore us and shine your face on us. We'll see that come up kind of as a refrain, kind of a chorus of a song. You know, the verses are different than you come back to the chorus, the thing that you want to hang on to. That sounds good to me. The concept of God shining his face on us sounds great. You see, this isn't the face of God. Some of us picture the face of God as kind of angry and judgmental and pointing the finger, but that's not our God. Our God is a God of love and a God of light and a God of warmth. It kind of makes me think of, of a day that's kind of cool and kind of cloudy and you're outside and, and then the sun peeks through the clouds and that warm sun comes on you. You know, not those bitter cold days where the sun's out and you don't feel it, but that time when that sun comes through and you're like, oh, it's like the cat who finds the patch of sunshine in your house and just, oh, this is sweet, right? Right there. That's kind of what's there is God's face shines and it's like, oh, that's God's face. He's just warming things. He's lighting things. He's bringing life and light into my life. That's what God offers. That's the hope that we want to look at today. Now, the historical background on Psalm 80, here's what I want to hit you with. It was probably written, if you want to take some notes, some of you are way into this, some of you know about this, some of you are like clueless, and so we'll just kind of do a medium amount and won't go too deep. It's not a history class, but I think it'll help us. It was written around 722 BC, so centuries before Jesus came, and it was written when Samaria fell to the Assyrians. A little bit of a background, the nation of Israel had divided into two parts. There were 10 of the 12 tribes that were called the Northern Kingdom, and they remained called Israel. You can check this out in, in the Old Testament to find out more details. The Southern Kingdom was called Judah, and there's two tribes in that. So the Northern Kingdom, both of them struggled with following God, but the Northern Kingdom went south and kept going south. I mean, it was it was a bad deal. The, the um, if you look through uh, Kings and Chronicles, you'll see that none, not one king, king after king in the northern kingdom ever followed God. Not one. Every single one of them, it, st it starts or ends their account by saying, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did e over and over again. The, the southern kingdom, Judah, did it had an evil king and then a good king and a couple of evil kings and a good king. So they did better in terms of following God. The northern kingdom for centuries had turned their back on God. And, and finally, God says, you know what? We're just done. I've warned you. I've warned you. I've warned you. The Assyrians come in and they conquer them and take them into captivity 
activity simply because they disobeyed God in huge ways, not just little like, ooh, I sinned, but flat-out worshiping idols, flat-out practicing all the things God said don't do, doing what he didn't want them to do, et cetera, et cetera, disobeying him, basically slapping him in the face again and again. And finally, in spite of God warning them again and again, if you keep that up, if you keep that up, if you keep that up, God's finally like, here you go, consequences of what it is. The Assyrians come in and take them out. They more than deserved it, but once it happens, the desperate pleas for restoration and salvation begin. Oops. It's either written by someone from the southern kingdom who watched the north disappear and are going, God, we don't want that to happen to us. Or maybe it's written right as the time that it's happening by someone from the north going, oh my goodness, what's happening? There's the context of this psalm of, of, of this nation gone. And this huge Assyrian empire has just obliterated them. And they're going, God, what is going on? So let's look at Psalm 80. Psalm 80 is a hopeful plea for restoration. We're actually going to walk through the whole psalm. And again, it's there in your outline on the screens. I'm going to walk through a stanza that's kind of broken up in little ways. And, and apologize the slides aren't set up that way because I didn't tell them to do it that way. But we'll read through it. I'm going to pause after a few verses. And I'm going to fill in some blanks. There's some things that you're going to go, what? I just want to make sure you understand that we're on the same page so that we can see the depth and the richness of what's there. So the first stanza is this. It starts out by saying, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. And here you go for the first time. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. It refers to God as a shepherd here. And in the Old Testament context, when they're calling God shepherd, they're really, that's not just like, oh, the shepherds, weren't they the poor guys that worked outside that couldn't do much else? And, you know, this was, this really meant king and leader. Because if we're your flock and you're the shepherd, you're the leader of us, you're the king. And they're really calling God and acknowledging that he's king. They mentioned that they mentioned Joseph in this in this in this part, and they say, "You who lead Joseph like a flock," and really that's referring to the whole nation of Israel. There, Joseph was one of the key figures in the the patriarchs, the beginning of the country. But they're really referring to all of these. Uh, there. Then it goes on to say, you are enthroned upon the cherubim. And this is, you're kind of like, okay, what's a cherubim? And what, what's this talking about here? This is talking about God's presence with the Ark of the Covenant. And so I put a picture up here because some of you are very fluent from this. Some of you aren't. Now we don't know exactly what it looks like, but uh, there is an honest, really good picture of what it might've looked like. The Bible, by the way, God prescribes in amazing detail, the dimensions, it's going to be overlaid with gold, blah, 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 angels over the top, etc. Now, how big were the angels and all that we don't know. But this was a huge deal. The nation of Israel, we'll talk about it in a few minutes, were set free from captivity and slavery in Egypt. This is in the book of Exodus. And Moses, if you've heard of Moses, he leads them out. And as they're going, God starts setting up what, what the, um, the temple's going to be like, what the, what the, all those sorts of things, including this is a key piece. And this is the Ark of the Covenant, God's promise to them. God would manifest his presence above the Ark of the Covenant now, God is everywhere, but he'd manifest his presence often in terms of light or smoke or something, often inside the tabernacle, but that represented the presence of God, and it's gold, baby. This is a precious thing here. And so I share all of that because sometimes you're reading the Bible and you go, this context, it's an ark and this enthroned between cherubim and these names, and I have no idea what's going on. And he's saying here, he's sitting here saying, you who are enthroned, your presence is here, your presence is with us, shine forth. And then he says, before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, and you're like, names that I don't know much about. Benjamin sounds familiar, Franklin, right? 
these are three of the 12 tribes of Israel. And some people, some scholars would say, well, he's just referring to Israel as a whole. But I think more tellingly, there's a small point I won't go into because it's long. As the nation traveled from Egypt, there are millions of people. Get that, millions of people, okay? Several times they counted them, and there were over 600,000 fighting men, men over the age of about 20. So when you add the women and kids, several million people is a conservative estimate at some point. They're marching through the wilderness towards, eventually towards Israel, where God takes them. takes years, not because God is so, but because people are stupid. Read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and all of that. But as we go and, and they're carrying this ark, the tribes would surround the ark and the three tribes that were following behind the ark, in essence, receiving the aftermath and falling right behind the ark for protection, but also following God. Following God is incredibly significant, isn't it? And it's these three tribes. So when we read here, I'm turning back to it, it says, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Because he went before them in the ark. We just talked about the ark. Stir up your might and come to save us. We will follow you as we follow you like Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh did. We want to follow you and then we want to receive the benefit of your face shining upon us, of your presence. Oh Lord, we need that. That's our hope. Because as your face shines upon us, we'll receive your salvation. So that's kind of what's going on here historically, historically through all of this. And the stanza ends with that repeated chorus that we've talked about. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Now the second stanza continues then. He says, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. It doesn't sound like much of a Thanksgiving meal, does it? A little sidebar there, right? It's all tears. You make us an object of, content, of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Oh, restore us, O oh God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Oh, it talks about an angry God. How long will you be angry? God's angry? Yes, God's a jealous God. God deserves love and faithfulness, obedience, because he's given them everything, and yet again and again, slap, 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 and finally God's like, yes, there's anger here, and there is, uh, he's angry at a stubborn, rebellious people who had scorned him for generations, basically ignored him and batted him around for centuries. And the psalm writer gives this picture of, of God now feeding them bread of tears, giving them tears to drink. And I have to reflect upon a psalm that was written earlier by David. He leads me beside still waters. Does that sound familiar? Psalm 23 leads me into green pastures. And these beautiful pictures, it's not that way anymore. In fact, the writer here might be thinking about that. Boy, God, these green pastures and still waters. And right now, we got tears. All we got is tears. I'm drinking tears. I'm eating tears. This is awful. And it's a bad place to be. The waters aren't still. The pastures aren't, rate, aren't, aren't restful and green. And again, the repeated chorus is they're just honest. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Well, the third stanza is a little change of tone at the beginning because it, it, it flashes back. And here's where we go back to Egypt. It says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it, the vine. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Well, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? How the boar from the forest ravages it and, and all that move in the field feed on it. Oh, turn again, O oh God of hosts. And that's a, a, that, I'll pause there. That little refrain is not exactly like the others, but it is a pause point there. 
Now, here the writer of the psalm recalls what God has done for them in the past, and this is huge. He stopped for a second in the midst of the trouble that he's in, and he looks back and goes, ah, we remember, it's been centuries, but we remember. God freed them from captivity and brought them out of Egypt, right? That's Moses in the book of Exodus. And then God led them into the promised land and planted them there, as written about really in the book of Joshua, the conquest of the land that happens now, the, the writer here refers to Israel as a vine. Just it's poetic. The Psalms are largely, think about poet, poems and songs. So there's poetry there. And he refers to him as a vine. He says, God, we are your vine and you're the owner of the vineyard. And as the owner of the vineyard, you cleared the land for us. You planted it deeply. You didn't just throw it down and say, good luck there. <laughs> you took care of it. You cultivated it. And it flourished and it grew. And it took over the land. Even the general borders of Israel are described here because as we read through the psalm, it talks about the, the cedars and the, and the water and the river and all those sorts of things here. This is really describing the land of Canaan that they took on. The cedars mentioned are the mighty cedars of the Lebanon mountains to the north. The river that's referred to, that's the Euphrates River on the east side, and the sea is the Mediterranean Sea to the west. Uh, so even though he's being poetic, at the same time he's going, God, look at all this amazing, beautiful area that you've given to us. Oh. That's awesome. And there's a moment there of, of recognition. In despair, the psalmist then asked God, why have you allowed this vineyard to be ravaged? Now, I have to pause and say, I'm pretty sure the writer knows why. Is that just me? Because God warned them through the prophets, through scripture, through the prophets, through the prophets, generation after generation and said, if then, if then, if you keep this up, if you worship idols, if you do all these horrendous things, if you, then this is going to happen. If you, then my face is going to be turned. If you do this, you're going to get in trouble. If you, if, here it is. We're finally there. God, why did you do it? What? Right? Does that make any sense here? I'm pretty sure he knows why. God warned them so many times the consequences and they're experiencing there and they don't like them. Now this turn again, O God of hosts statement is interesting. Turn again, O God of hosts. It's kind of functions as a different version of that chorus. It appears three times. He's saying, God, turn your wrath from us. Instead, turn so that your back isn't to us, but so that your face is. There we go again, back to the face, right? Turn so that your face can shine on us and we can be saved. Well, the final stanza of Psalm 80 says, look down from heaven, God, and see, oh, see, have regard for this vine, this stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. Oh, they've burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you, Give us life and we will call upon your name. One more time. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Now, during this section, we see a variety of names for Israel. Again, poetic, God's chosen people. They're called the vine, again, as before that God planted. They're called the son and the man of your right hand and the son of man. And all these terms are really pointing to God as the father. There's an acknowledgement that you're the father, we're the, we're, we're the, the kids, and uh, the desperate kids at this point, right? And, and so God is our father. And they're saying, Father, let your hand be on us. Give us life and, and we'll call. We will call upon your name. We won't turn back from you again. <laughs> really, we won't. Now, this is just me. It doesn't say this in scripture, but this is me. It sounds like a kid 
promising one more time, if you give me one more chance, I really will do what you say, really, I will, right? The kid who's made the mistake again and again, and finally the consequences come, and there's one more promise of that. I kind of thought through Thanksgiving time made me think of it, of Lucy holding the football for Charlie Brown as he's going to come kick it. Charlie Brown, I promise I won't pull it away this time. I really won't. And Charlie Brown always falls for it. And what does she do? She pulls the football away and he falls down. Ah, smack on his back. What does she say the next time? Really, I promise. Really, I will. And it kind of reflected on this here. Like, okay, you're promising this. The truth is it may sound a little bit lightweight and it might sound trite, but it's a pledge of repentance here because they've never been conquered before. It's, it's a promise to turn around from their wicked ways and to change from living for themselves to living for God. And then Psalm 80 ends with that repeated chorus, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Repeated just so that God knows for sure what they're asking for. God, I'm saying it again. So in this entire psalm, they recognize they're in deep trouble and that God is their only hope of restoration, their only hope for salvation, and they express their feelings of desperation. They just let it out. Blah, this is awful. Well, I want to shift gears now and, and ask the question, what is this psalm calling us to today? And the truth is that all of us have, have a need for restoration, salvation. We have a need for revival, and this psalm offers us hope. The hope today is found in Jesus, and we can see Jesus in this psalm. We just walked through every verse, and I didn't see the word Jesus, but we're going to see Jesus pop up all over the place as we go through it again for us. The hope today is found in Jesus, and we can see Jesus as we prepare for Christmas and the birth of that baby who offers hope to all. We see prophetic references to Jesus when they talk about God as a shepherd, right? Because that means leader and king, but Jesus called himself the shepherd, right? And we're his sheep. He said that multiple times, and, and he knows his sheep by name. You know, I, I'm just a dumb sheep. Oh, but he knows you, and he loves you because he's the shepherd, and Jesus said that about himself. It's kind of a foreshadowing thing. He gives us care, call, his call, and his love. Now, where vine is referred to here in Psalm 80, right, as the nation of Israel, but what do we see Jesus talk about in the book of John? He says, I am the true vine. Jesus says, I'm the true vine, and my father is a vine dresser, and he says, you are the branches. So as you abide in me, as you, as you exist in close relationship with me, you will find hope and health and strength and life. So we see a reference to the vine of, of, of foreshadowing and implying Jesus. And then we see the term son and even son of man here in Psalm 80. And this is one that's most obvious for me because when you read this, I get the Israel son, and the, you know, the, but the son of man, I'm like, gosh, this is just... This is Jesus all over it. Because as you're looking for hope in God's face and the light of God's face, that's found in Jesus. So we see this term, Son of Man. Jesus called himself the Son of Man in the Gospels in the New Testament time and time again, so many times. And in Psalm 80, it says, The Son of Man whom you have made strong, or in some versions it would say you've raised up for yourself. Who is that talking about? The son of man that you've made strong and raised up for yourself? That's God talking about God and Jesus. So as we look at this psalm now to apply to ourselves, and now you get to fill in some blanks in your outline if you were waiting for that. We want to look to the shepherd and the vine and the son of man as we look to capture the wonder of hope at Christmas. We have context for, uh, for the psalm. But God, what does that mean for us today? Let's take a look. The hope of restoration, salvation. How can we do that to capture the wonder of hope at Christmas? We want some of that wonder. First of all, we want to be honest with God. Pray. 
Now, pray sounds like the answer to almost every fill-in-the-blank and every basic, basic sermon you might ever hear, right? What's the answer? Pray. That's a good guess for any of them, right? But I wanted to make sure I put something in there first. Be honest with God. Pray. I'm not putting down prayer, by the way. It's such a basic thing, but sometimes we're like, yeah, 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 pray. What else? No, 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 not what else. Pray. And I'm saying specifically, be honest with God. This is share your troubles, your deepest fears, your desperate concerns. Express yourself and don't hold back. Because the psalmist didn't, did he? Right? Don't hold back. Tell him how you feel, even if you might not be theologically correct. Here's the deal. If you're worried about saying something wrong, you're not going to say anything. And, and I reflect, bonus, I didn't say this in first service. I cut it out. Second service, here it is. Um, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis back in the 90s, and, um, and it kind of threw me into topsy-turvy. Lord, what does this mean? And for several months, I was a youth pastor at the time, for several months, I just kind of kept being strong, and I know God's going to take care of me, but my body's going weird, and all these things are happening. And, and finally, and, and I was being strong, and people would say, man, you're being strong. And I'd say, what else am I going to do? I'm either going to curse God and die. I mean, in a sense, what does that do me? Or I'm going to follow and trust God. But the truth was I never was honest with God. And one night I finished a, a youth group meeting that I led on a Wednesday night and I just walked out. I prayed and I walked out of the room and I went out in a field down in Southern California and I had my time with God and I fell on my knees and I shouted, how could you do this to me? You know, I've left the music business and now I'm, I'm a youth pastor and you do this to me and, blah, 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 and, I, blah, and I was a mess. <laughs> About an hour. So this is like nine to 10 o'clock at night on a Wednesday night. And I come back in the room, and some of the, some of the leadership team, the staff was there, just there for me to hug me. And I guarantee you some of what I said out there in the field, you could call blasphemy. I, God did that to me? Ooh, well, John, you know. I know. I just shared how I felt. And folks, if we're so worried about, well, should I feel this way? And should I express this? Is God going to be afraid of this? Is it, make, is it get me in trouble? You're not going to say anything. God says, just have a relationship with me. Be a kid and go ahead and blah, and sometimes your blood's going to be ugly and stinky and smelly and bad. But then we can clean it up together, right? That's really our call here as we look to capture some of the hope of Christmas is be real with God. As your, as your prayers happen, pray and express yourself. And, and, and God's going to meet with you. God's going to offer you hope. He's going to let his face shine on you. When you express the mess, he can take care of the mess. Well, next, to capture the wonder of hope at Christmas, secondly, remember what God has done in the past and be thankful. Remember what God has done in the past. Sometimes we get so caught in the darkness of our present or the uncertainties that, that, that it just seems dark. And, and I, I feel that the psalm is absolutely giving us a model of look back and go, yes, be thankful. He looks back here at, at God. Look at what you did. These miracles you got us out of Egypt and Pharaoh and his armies. You parted the Red Sea. The long, long story of everything that God did and the water out of the rock and the manna from heaven and all this stuff. Wow, God. Oh, thank you. You see, as I reflect on what God has done on the past, it gives me a better hope for the future. That same God who loved me enough to work the miracles and sustain me in the past is still with me and loves me and is going to take care of my future. Oh, that's so important. Now, it's easy to tell someone to be thankful um, when you're at a time like this at Thanksgiving, right? It's easy to be thankful because that's what we're supposed to do right now. In fact, how many of you thought about and maybe even shared something you were thankful for on Thanksgiving Day? Right. In fact, you know, one of my kiddos at home, you know, Dad, are we going to do that thing again where we go around the table and say something that we're thankful for? You know, and I don't know. That's a good idea. Thanks for that. Right. 
kind of the teenager thing that goes on. And, and uh, we had a chance of impromptu. You didn't have to, but share through some of that. And a lot of us do that, right? Because why? Because it's Thanksgiving. Did you do that two weeks earlier? Are you going to do that in two or three weeks? No, as we eat, let's reflect for a moment on what we're thinking. Why not? Thanksgiving is an awesome time to focus on that, but that could be our focus of every day. Because I'm convinced that as I am thankful and I look at being thankful and seeing who God is and what he's done, it's going to transform my present and my future. We should celebrate and be thankful every single day. And it's a beautiful thing. Now, third, to capture the wonder of hope at Christmas, we have to pray, express yourself honestly, look to the past, celebrate, and be thankful. And third, be willing to change. Be willing to change. Turn around. The truth is some of us are a bit short of hope this holiday season because we're living in a way that um, if you're honest, you know, you're busy and things are just going, but you're maybe not living in a way that's pleasing God. Maybe it's just because you're so busy that you kind of squeezed God out of your life. God will have some time for you later. Maybe you're in a worse spot. You're living in a way that's offensive to God, and the Bible will call that sin. You know, we're sinning. We're living for ourselves, and maybe you know it. You know, we're aware of it, but I'm not quite ready to change. It's not comfortable to admit it, but the sin is robbing us of hope. So we have to be willing to change, to turn around. And that's what here I sit here and say, is there something that needs change in God? Do I need to turn here so that I can see the light of your face? Now, to turn simply means to repent, to turn your back on the sin and the mess that's entangled you and begin moving in God's direction. Now, you honestly might be in a good place today. As I was writing this down through the psalm and writing this outline, I thought, what about the person that's sitting here going, well, John, I'm actually, I'm pretty close to God right now. Do I just skip this point? You could. Or you might be in a place that you don't need a complete about face. That may not be what's needed, but you can still ask God to search your heart. God, search my heart, says in the Psalms. Try me and know my, my thoughts. Lead me in your way everlasting. Maybe it's a time to say, God, search me, and, and maybe you can reveal something to me. See what does maybe need his healing and need his transforming touch. Maybe it's not something wrong, but maybe there's something more. So would you be willing to turn and to change? Now, this is kind of complex, but when it comes to turning or repenting, because the Psalms talks about that, and, and what we usually hear is, repent, you must turn and do it. What it's really saying is this, ask God to help us turn. It's saying this, listen, turn to us, God, and make us turn to you. It acknowledges that we can't do it on our own, and this is key. Rather than just say, work hard, you repent, I'm going to sit back, God might say, or I'm going to sit back and see if you do it. No. It's the truth is, if you've ever tried that on your own, it doesn't work, right? Oh, through self-effort, I'm going to stop this bad habit, or I'm going to stop this, and then back and forth. You do good, you do bad, you do good, you do bad, and it just continues, and it's that treadmill of self-effort, and, and, and it, this acknowledges you can't do it on your own. Isn't it true? Trying on our own to overcome our sin and our bad habits is just doomed to failure, and I don't know if you've ever been there, but... And I just say, stop trying so hard on your own. Get on with praying for God to do that work in us. For the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside. Because that's really where it's going to come. The self-effort is just that self. Forward, back, forward, back. God, transformation from the inside. God, lead me to a better place. Well, finally, to capture the wonder of Christmas, fourth, rely and rest on Jesus. Put your hope in him alone. This is hope here. 
This one makes me think real basic. You know, we did pray at the beginning and now just trust Jesus. Have you ever had anybody give you that advice when you're struggling? Just pray and trust Jesus. Oh, shut up. (laughs) I'm trying to do that, right? But it's true, and I have to say it because that's really what the Psalms are going through. This Psalm 80, put your hope and trust not in yourself. Because that's what our culture says. Put your hope in yourself. Stand on your own two feet. Be a man. Be a woman. Be strong. Be independent. You can make this happen. Make it happen. Suck it up if you don't, right? You know, you've got lots of negative terms if you aren't doing it. Come on. What is that? I don't see that in Scripture. I, don't, I just don't see that. Put your hope and your trust in yourself. How's that working for you? <laughs> don't put it in your money. Don't put in your intellect. I'm pretty smart. Your skills, your giftedness. Don't don't put it in good fortune. Good things are bound to happen if I keep at it long enough. Nothing. Don't put your hope in anything but the one who will never fail you, Jesus. You see, in Jesus, God has let his face shine on us all the time. Jesus, because Jesus is here, his face shines on us all the time. Jesus is the human face of God. We've seen the very smile of God in him. He's our good shepherd, and we can trust him completely. And I know that's easier said than done, (laughs) you know, just trust him. But to experience the wonder of Christmas and the hope of Jesus, that's what it takes. Stopping, sitting, looking with wonder at God and choosing to lay it all at his feet, relying and resting on Jesus And so I just ask you, do you need renewal today? Do you need restoration, revival, new life? You need light. You need salvation. That's the hope we find in Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem more than 2,000 years ago. He wants your soul to be renewed. That's what he wants. He, He wants to give you new life. So he calls us to experience his hope by praying from our whole hearts, our desperate, full expression, He wants us to celebrate the past and be thankful, cultivate that attitude of of thankfulness that's here all the time. He wants us to be willing to turn and change. You've got to be willing to, to say, God, it's got to happen. And he wants us to put our trust in Jesus completely so that we can change and experience that hope. That's the wonder of God that began at Christmas that we get a glimpse of in Psalm 80. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your face that you, that you do shine upon us in Jesus. God, I love in the Psalms it says several times, Lord, I seek your face. I, I want to see your face. And we hear that anybody who sees the face of God will die in the Old Testament times. And yet Jesus reveals your face. Lord, we want that. Give us your light. Let your face shine on us. Revive us. Restore us. Prompt us to turn and to change. Empower us to that as needed. Father, I also pray if there's anybody here today who's never prayed to receive Jesus and just needs that salvation, that first most huge step of coming into your family and receiving forgiveness and new life. If that's you, you simply put your faith and trust in him. It's not magic words. It's your heart saying, first of all, I believe in you, Jesus that you came and lived a perfect life and died for me and rose from the dead. And then you ask for him to forgive your sins and you ask him to come into your life and he restores you and he begins the revival and the remaking process. 
Father, thank you that you do that so faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.